Welcome to Public Health Out Loud, Public Health for the Public. Hi, I'm Dr. Jim McDonald, Medical Director of the Rhode Island Department of Health. I'm Dr. Phil Chan. Welcome, everyone. Dr. Chan, always good to see you. And I'm very excited about our guest today, Dr. Ina Park. I know you know Dr. Ina Park from a long time ago. Would you please give us a little vignette of who Dr. Ina Park is? Then we'll just introduce her right here. Yeah, so Dr. Park and I uh, were just talking about this. We've known each other now for the greater part of a decade. Uh, both from the STI world, but I'm going to let Dr. Park uh, introduce herself. Welcome, Dr. Park. It's a pleasure to have you. Please tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, well, thanks for having me on. So I'm an associate professor over at the UC San Francisco School of Medicine, so about as far away from Rhode Island as you can possibly get. And I also do some consulting, and that's uh, another area where uh, Dr. Chan and my world overlap. We are both consultants for the CDC's Division of STD Prevention. And I'm the medical director for a training organization called the Prevention Training Center out in California. So I just go around and talk to people about sex and STI. It's a great job. You know, Dr. Park, you, I have one UCFS story. Well, maybe a couple, but actually <laughs> during my internship, I was at Naval Hospital Oakland, which through no fault oh, yeah. of my own has been closed. It was base mm-hmm. realignment and closure. It wasn't my fault they closed the hospital. But I, I have to tell you, during the first Gulf War back in 1990, I was actually sent to the neonatal intensive care unit at University of California, San Francisco to do my NICU rotation. So I, mm-hmm. I sometimes joke with people that when the war was going on, as I was active duty U.S. Navy, my role was to defend the West Coast from the invasion of premature babies. And as near as I can tell, I was successful in my mission. Um, so I have a little bit of familiarity with San Francisco and UCFS and, um, and all the bridges over there. But it, it kind of leads me to my next question, which is, so what have you been doing during the pandemic? You've got a book out, but we want to hear, how's the book been going? And, and tell us about your book and what are you doing during the pandemic? Well, so, you know, I think I was doing what a lot of uh, working women were doing, which is trying to work and homeschool children, which was, you know, obviously a little bit of an experiment in terror. But yes, um, indeed, a couple of months ago, I uh, put out a book called Strange Bedfellows, which is sort of about my field. It's uh, the subtitle is Adventures in the Science, History, and Surprising Secrets of STDs. And so this book was delayed twice because of COVID, as is everything else in the world, and uh, it just came out February 2nd. And so in it, I use you know, humor and storytelling to sort of highlight the latest science in our field and also sort of spin some historical tales uh, in there as well. And the whole goal is to try to destigmatize the topic of STIs, which, you know, both of you know are incredibly common in all 50 states, including Rhode Island. Thank you, Dr. Park. I think you and I are both uh, in deep, as you would say, for the <laughs> STD world. Um, congratulations on the new book. Uh, I've started reading it uh, and look forward to finishing it. But I think for the for our listeners here who may not be as involved in the world of STDs, tell us a little bit about where are we uh, in the world of STDs? Are they increasing, decreasing? Are they still concerned? Should we be tested? What sort of what what should the average layperson who's listening know about where we are in the United States for STDs? Well, can we just say it's not pretty? I mean, we don't even know what really happened during the pandemic. You know, as Dr. McDonald brought up, like, we don't know what people have been up to during the pandemic, right? But, uh, you know, prior to the pandemic, at least according to the preliminary data from the CDC, was the worst year on record 2019 was for uh, cases of STIs. And we'll hear the final, you know, numbers next month. So in terms of what happened during the pandemic, I mean, I think that what, from what we can tell that people did actually shelter in place including social and sexual distancing. But at least from what we've seen out here in San Francisco, 
And, you know, with some of the preliminary like national numbers, it seems like people are awakening sexually again and they're sort of pandemic induced sexual repression is now reaching a breaking point. So, so Dr. Park, I wanna go back to your book. There's gotta be memorable sure. stories in your book, Strange Bedfellows, but are there COVID stories or did you write your book before the pandemic? I wrote my book before the pandemic, but I think the overlap with COVID really comes into play, Jim, when I have an entire chapter on contact tracing, which is called knock, knock, it's the sex detectives, because I'm sure, as you know, you know, contact tracing, that practice was originated for the control of syphilis back in 1937. And when I wrote that chapter, my editor and I worried, oh my gosh, we're really going to have to explain what contact tracing is because no one's going to have heard of it. And now everyone and their grandmother knows what contact tracing is because of the pandemic. So I think you know, there's a lot of relevance there because we know how hard contact tracing is and how difficult it is to perform, particularly when you're coming up against something like an STI, where there's also all these questions of infidelity and relationships and trust and whatnot that can be violated when an STI enters the picture. So um, yeah, that's that chapter on contact tracing is one of my favorites because we interview people from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and then to the present day. And as we can imagine, it's really changed during that time. Yeah, it's fascinating. We've been talking here to the Department of Health about some of the lessons learned from the STI world and COVID world. And there is a, a bunch of overlap, I think, as you pointed out, contact tracing. I think people have just become so much more aware of public health in general, which is, yeah. I guess, one of the few good things that has come out of uh, of the pandemic. And, you know, I think the CDC and the public health departments and people who work in public health, uh, their work has really been held up, which is which is fantastic. Um, uh, in terms of uh, behaviors, you know, one thing that as you were talking about the sexual repression, I mean, I'm thinking about stories of Miami Beach, right, about everything we've been seeing on the news about yes. the parties going on down there. But uh, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, do you do you think that we'll see to your point about the, the restrictions probably affecting behaviors? What do you think we're going to see in 2021 related to STIs? Do you think that they're still going to keep going up or what direction do you think we're going to go? Well, so, you know, what's interesting, um, guys, is that in the early part of the shutdown, you know, I don't think people lost their interest in sex. And in fact, I think it just sort of pivoted and, you know, apps like Tinder, for example, I'll just poke, you know, I'll just pick on them. They actually had their highest number of swipes on March 29th of 2020. They had 3 billion swipes. So we know people were downloading that app, learning how to use it and actually using it to connect with people, even if they weren't going to have sex in real life. And so what I've noticed is that, you know, lots of patients at the sexual health clinic, for example, in San Francisco have been saying to me, I held out for four months, five months, six months, and I just simply can't hold out anymore. And then when people sort of let themselves out into the world again, into the dating scene, I feel like it's going to, you know, it's this sort of making up for lost time. So I think we're going to be going back to the roaring 20s again, and we're going to have this sort of unfettered sexual expression um, throughout our country. So for Phil and myself, Dr. Chan and myself, we're going to have some job security, I think, in 2021. That's my prediction. You know, it's interesting, Dr. Park. I think one of the themes about the pandemic is there's a lot of pent-up demand, and, and I, I'm, I'm sure you're <laughs> right, but there's, there, I think there's pent-up demand for a lot of things, like tourism and going yes. to movie theaters, finding yes. a decent restaurant. 
But I, I want to go back to your book. So the subtitle is of Strange Bedfellows. The, the subtitle is Adventures in the Science, History, and Surprising Secrets of STDs. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, you've piqued my curiosity. What is one surprising secret of STDs? Because I, I didn't know there were surprising secrets. Tell me something, please. Uh, yes. Well, <laughs> that's because, Jim, you knew everything already. So there's nothing. There's no more surprises oh, there you left go. for you. There you go. <laughs> but, um, you know, for your audience who we we know are not necessarily, you know, clinicians or public health folks. Right. Um, many of them may have actually be, be familiar with ABC's The Bachelor. It's been in the news a lot. You know, lots of controversy going on around that. Well, let me tell you a little backstory about how STIs are related to The Bachelor. So for the prospective bachelorettes, all of the bachelorettes are actually screened for STIs. And in fact, they all receive a blood test for antibodies to the herpes simplex virus, so HSV2. And if they actually have a positive result on one of those antibody tests, they are excluded from participation in The Bachelor. So they don't let The Bachelor decide whether or not, you know, the bachelorette in question should be able to participate. They actually screen them out right away. And one of the secrets that I mentioned in there is that, you know, these tests are not very good. And by not very good, I mean, when they come up with a low positive value, which many of them do, about half of those are false positives. So we are taking away people's chance for true love on reality TV on the basis of a test that gives a ton of false positives. And we would never stand for this for HIV or for, you know, for other diagnostic tests, but yet this is the best test that we have for herpes antibodies. So that's my, that's my secret related to pop culture and herpes simplex virus. That's, that's a great surprising secret for me. And I, <laughs> I didn't really see reality TV coming into our episode today, nor did I ever see the bachelorette coming in. It's actually interesting. We've mentioned star Wars on this podcast, star Trek, <laughs> lot of other science fiction things, but that's the first time we've talked about the bachelorette. So, so Dr. Chan, I'm going to have to let you take the next question on this one then. <laughs> well, I think you raise, you know, you raise some interesting question about these STIs. So I think as we're, as we're talking through some of this, uh, reminding folks, of course, that uh, HIV is sexually transmitted, you know, we have gonorrhea, chlamydia, uh, syphilis, uh, herpes, and the most common STI actually is HPV, yes. um, uh, et cetera. So lots of things out there. All these are increasing. I think with the exception of HIV, we have seen a decreasing trend in HIV over the last decade. Good news. Uh, but still, you know, people need to screen to be aware of, um, et cetera. So in, what's, your, what's the most concerning STI in your opinion, Dr. Park? What are your, what are your thoughts about um, what are people most at risk of and what should they worry the most about and get tested for? Oh, wow. I get to vote. This is very exciting. Um, I have to say, I, I would not be excited to be getting gonorrhea these days. Um, and uh, Dr. Chan, you'll identify with this. I, you know, I write about this in the book about the fact that gonorrhea is such a smart organism. It has managed to develop antibiotic resistance to every an- class of antibiotics that we've thrown at it. And right now in the US, as of December, 2020, uh, the CDC actually pulled one of the antibiotics that we used to use for treatment. And we are down to one class of antibiotics left in this country. And, you know, the issue is, as we have seen from Operation Warp Speed, is that sometimes you can bring things to market very quickly, but most of the time clinical trials take a long time and we don't have anything immediately ready, you know, off the shelf in case we lose the ability to, um, to use the antibiotic that we have left. So, you know, I think 
condoms, one message for listeners is that condoms work really well to prevent against gonorrhea. And so, um, you know, barriers are your best bet at this point uh, if you want to avoid getting uh, and potentially antibiotic resistant infection. You know, I think Dr. Park, one of the things you make me think about is, I think that's one of the things about sexually transmitted infections in general is just, I think people are surprised to know that you can carry an infection. In other words, you can be asymptomatic. And what's interesting mm-hmm. about that is when I think about the SARS-CoV-2 virus that caused our COVID-19 pandemic is one of the reasons this particular virus was so successful was because so many people were asymptomatic at spreading it from one person to another. And it, it just kind of reminds me about the asymptomatic carriage of, of sexually transmitted infections. And yeah. yet I have to admit, I don't remember the rates. How common is it for people to be an asymptomatic chlamydia patient, for example, or an asymptomatic gonorrhea patient? How, how common is it? I know I should know that from medical school, but I'm getting old. I'm losing hair and everything. What are yeah. these numbers? Well, you know, to be honest with you, so it depends on the location of the infection. So I'm going to just uh, pick on chlamydia here. So, you know, most women who have chlamydia, and we're talking upwards of 70, 80% of women can actually have no symptoms at all. And for men, it's a little bit less common. You know what I mean? Most of the time when men have chlamydia, you know, they often have a little bit of discharge or tingling when they go to the bathroom, but, you know, you can have, a, you know, a around half, maybe a little bit less than half have no symptoms at all. So uh, with gonorrhea, it's a little bit different, but if you happen to have gonorrhea in the rectum or the throat, many, most of those infections are asymptomatic. So it really depends on the location and the bug we're talking about. Um, and depending on also the gender and, um, and which sexual organs are infected. So uh, it's a difficult question to answer, but I think your main point is that so many infections are asymptomatic, and that is why we are able to transmit them silently, unawares of what's going on, and why they continue to, to flourish in the same way that SARS-CoV-2 uh, was able to propagate asymptomatically as well. Yeah, thank you for that, Dr. Park. I think one thing you touched on, too, was this uh, concept of pharyngeal or throat gonorrhea um, and having actually, you know, most people think about gonorrhea chlamydia as, you know, infections of your your, your urethra of the, you know, uh, urogenerate tract. But what are your thoughts? You know, one thing I've been surprised about over the last decade here is that we've learned a lot more that you can get a lot of infections through um, uh, different types of sexual acts. So we're talking just oral sex or yep. even just kissing potentially. So yes. what? It, so if a person is kissing or uh, just having or just having oral sex, uh, uh-huh. what's the risk of different type of STIs? Should, should people worry? Should they be tested? What are What are your thoughts with that? A lot of people may not be aware about that. Right. I mean, I think, you know, we think of oral sex as safer sex. And I think that it is when we're talking about HIV. But when we're talking about STIs, you know, you can absolutely get gonorrhea easily into the back of the throat by giving someone oral sex. And you can also there is some, you know, thought out there that uh, even deep kissing um, with somebody who might have gonorrhea in their throat might be enough to transmit the bacteria there as well. And then we know chlamydia can live in the throat, although chlamydia prefers the rectum and the um, genital tract, it can be found there. And so, you know, I think oral sex is safer from an HIV standpoint, but not not so much from a STI standpoint. And in fact, syphilis can also be transmitted, you know, easily through oral sex, as can, um, you know, herpes simplex virus type one. So it's not, you know, I don't want to discourage people from having oral sex. We are pro-oral sex here, but I want folks to be informed about the fact that you can still catch STIs that way. 
So we're talking to Dr. Ina Park, author of Strange Bedfellows, Adventures in Science, History, and Surprising Secrets of STDs. So you've given me a surprising secret of STDs, Dr. Park, but now I'm curious, what would be an adventure in science? Like I loved science when I was all throughout high school and college and medical school. It's science what drove me into medicine. Adventures yeah. in science, I have an imagination. I'm curious where this brought you though. Tell me more. Yeah, so what it did was it brought me, you know, very deeply into the microbiome. And I know, you know, listeners have probably heard because Dr. Phil, the other Dr. Phil, not the one that we're talking to now, like, you know, Dr. Phil and Andrew Weil and every, you know, internet doctor and doctor on TV has talked about the gut microbiome. And I don't know if people realize that we also have microbiomes on our skin surfaces and in our vaginas and in our, in our mouths. And so I took a really deep dive into all of the bacteria that live within the vaginal microbiome and what happens sometimes when that microbiome gets disturbed by bacterial forces, you know, such as bacteria that don't require a lot of oxygen called anaerobes. And when those grow out of control, then we end up with a disturbed microbiome and sort of a fishy odor to the vagina um, that is known as bacterial vaginosis. And it's a really common condition, you know, about one in four women will have it at some point in their lifetimes. So I just uh, took a deep dive into how all of those bacteria were discovered uh, and the scientists responsible for it. And uh, also looked into the history of how folks were trying to induce this infection by transplanting vaginal fluid from, uh, from one subject to another in these research studies. So it was a super interesting chapter and also looking at the history of um, douching and uh, the fact that people used to put things like Lysol in their vaginas, which you can imagine is uh, a very bad idea. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, I, I just have to stop that. Um, so Lysol, <laughs> I, and I just want to just, I got to resonate with that for just a minute because we heard about bleach in 2020. Yep. I just didn't see Lysol coming into conversation today anywhere. <laughs> but I, I think it speaks to a, a human behavior issue, which is that people will try things that empirically make sense to them. Right. And I and I get that. And I think that it's one thing to try things on your lawn, but I don't think you should do these things on your body. Um, and I think it's just a little word for the wise as humans go is that, you know, there's a reason why we do science. And especially when right. it comes to medicine in particular, it, there's a reason why we study medicines before we give them to people. And I think about with the pandemic in particular, a lot of conversation about hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine yes. didn't really pan out. And I, and I think this is one of those things where I think so many times people are willing to take advice from someone who's not an expert uh, and just try something. And all of a sudden they're dealing with a health consequence from that. But anyways, Dr. Chan, back to you. The Lysol thing had me going. I have to just tell you, but there we go. I'm no apologies. Now. No apologies. Uh, yes. Uh, the bleach thing still makes me, throws me off as well. But uh, Dr. Park, I, I did want to circle back to you about something you mentioned. You mentioned being pro-sex. And I, I think for all of us, uh, certainly in public health, we're very, you know, pro-healthy relationships. You know, sex is mm -hmm. certainly part of that. And for people that are listening, what are some ways, you mentioned condoms uh, for sure. Um, but what are some ways that people can uh, protect themselves in general? I think, ob you know, obviously on one spectrum, there's abstinence, uh, which may be right. a good fit for some people. Um, uh, but what are some other ways besides condoms, besides, you know, uh, abstinence that people can just in general protect themselves, prevent STIs, et cetera? What are your thoughts? Yeah. So 
you know, first I just want to touch on, you know, we talked about barriers, right? So we have the sort of traditional condom that we all think of, which goes over the penis. And then there's also an internal condom that can be worn either inside the vagina or inside the rectum, which I think is just, it, it's suffering from a lack of, you know, PR and it needs a little bit more publicity. So I just want to point those out as well, but you know, you're right, Phil, like the only way to completely avoid STIs is to not have sex. And we really don't think that's realistic, you know, both for the propagation of the species and the fact that we are human beings and we need to have sex. So, you know, my advice to folks is in terms of reducing STI risk, because you can't eliminate it completely if you're going to have sex, is having one partner at a time is helpful. Because when we have a situation called concurrency, where you're sort of going back and forth with multiple partners in a very short period of time, that is a setup. When you have lots of people doing that in a community, that is a setup for spreading STIs at a, a faster rate. The other thing that folks can do, which was something we talked about as well during the pandemic, was, you know, if you're going to pod with somebody, right, sexually, in this, in this sense, before you're going to start a new pod with somebody else or a new relationship, sort of testing in between is another way to mitigate risk. Because if you have something, you're sort of disrupting the chain of transmission if you get treated before you start a new relationship. So this whole idea of, you know, having one partner at a time and testing in between or spacing out your partnerships, you know, is another way that you can reduce risk. But I'm not about you know, eliminating risk, because I don't think that's possible, but I do think it's a good idea to minimize your chance of regret. So I would also say like have sex with nice people because um, that doesn't protect you from STIs, but if you, you know, have sex with people that are jerks or whatever, then, then when you get an STI, then you're even more upset about it. I really like the advice about minimize your chance of regret. Yeah. Uh, because I think that's something that you know, you really speak to the heartstrings about sometimes the reality of what happens yeah. when there's been a discovery. And, and I guess one thing I just want to bring a parallel from the pandemic. You know, one of the things about SARS-CoV-2 is it's not like I'm an older doctor. I know I don't look that old to you. Thank you for thinking that, by the way. <laughs> but I am older. And, and but it's interesting, like SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19 is a new disease. And, right. you know, one of the things that we've been doing in Rhode Island is actually doing every other week CMEs about learning about this new disease but it's kind of interesting. I remember another new disease and there aren't that many new diseases that come into medicine, um, right. but I actually went to medical school in the uh, late eighties. There we go. And there was a new disease then it was, we kept changing the name of it though. We now call it HIV, mm -hmm. uh, but it's interesting how there are many different names to it. And I guess I'm just wondering, do you see any parallels between HIV and the pandemic at all? Cause there's some that are coming to mind when you talk about frequent testing, that was one thing that came to mind. Yeah. Do you see any other parallels at all? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've, I've actually talked about this to other doctors because, you know, what we know about what we learned about, um, you know, potting and testing in between changing pods um, and trying to reduce the, you know, the concurrency in relationships, we learned a lot of that from HIV um, because people studied sexual networks and they saw how HIV was transmitted and they learned, you know, what would facilitate transmission and what might prevent transmission. So I think we also learned that in the same way that wearing a, a mask is politicized, you know, there were lots of folks who did not want to wear condoms at the beginning of the, uh, of the AIDS epidemic, you know, and not wanting their sexual freedoms taken away. I think there's a lot of parallels when uh, there was a lot of up, uh, uproar about 
closing gay bathhouses. I don't know if you remember that, Dr. McDonald, um, because folks were saying you are, you know, restricting our sexual freedoms. And I think we saw that as well during COVID-19 where folks said, you know, how dare, you know, how dare you shut down, you know, my, the restaurants and bars and gyms that I go to because of this, you know, because of this new virus. So I actually think there's lots of parallels. Yeah. One thing I've often thought about during the pandemic, right, is, you know, if we talk about the need for STI screening in general for, you know, populations that are most at risk, et cetera, pre-COVID, you know, there's been a lot of parallels in COVID, during COVID, especially as we've talked about COVID testing, COVID vaccination. I mean, there's been, you know, substantial and significant disparities that have emerged as we've tried to engage different populations for, for different aspects of COVID. And, you know, it was interesting to me early in the pandemic, people, people, People were surprised. You know, it was a theme like early on, like people were like, whoa, look at these disparities. You know, African-American, black, Hispanic, Latino communities aren't testing as much. Like, why is that? And I think for, you know, a number of us in public health and uh, uh, et cetera, I mean, they weren't surprising. And I think this speaks certainly for the world of STIs. It speaks to some of the challenges we've always had that have really been highlighted and uh, exacerbated during COVID. So I guess my my last question to you, Dr. Park, is, is how do we, how do we, you know, you mentioned that the STI, the STIs in general are, are, are really skyrocketing, significantly increasing. I mean, how do we, how do we get a handle on it? What do we need to do as a society, as a country, as different states uh, to really get the trend going in the right direction? I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that we have to do, and so this is by no means, you know, the only thing we have to do, but I think we saw what happened um, with public health infrastructure being so weak when we first started trying to respond to the pandemic. And, um, you know, things were starting to fall apart and the wheels were coming off because public health has been so underfunded for so many years. So I think what we saw during the pandemic is a investment in public health departments and then a pivoting away from provision of sexual health services because we were all just you know, putting all hands on deck to respond to COVID. So what I would like to see is that some of the investment of staff and modernizing of data systems and building up of public health infrastructure, that we can keep that going and pivot back towards provision of sexual health services and make our, um, you know, public health, sexual health clinics system even more robust than it was prior to the pandemic. Um, I would love to see greater access to testing and especially home-based testing because I think everybody, a lot of people learned how to do their medical care online and got comfortable with it. And I think if we were to be able to increase testing by mailing out kits to folks who needed STI testing, which I understand that Rhode Island is quite interested in, I really think that that could go a long way um, in getting folks tested. Uh, but we have a lot, there's a lot to do. And, um, you know, those are just two examples of what we could do to start chipping away at this issue. Yeah, Dr. Park, a lot of what you've said today makes sense. One of the things you just said that, that makes sense to me is, you know, I, I think for most of the country, we just don't understand the power of public health. Right. And it's been underfunded for decades. And uh, I, actually, it's funny, for the longest time, I defined public health as limited resources, optimal outcome. And yeah. we never have enough. And it's yeah. weird now because right now it's like a ton of resources. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting. Like, I think one of the things that we've been so focused on in our country is we think healthcare occurs in this 10 by 10 exam room. Right. And really what I think most people are recognizing now is that 
a lot of what has to do with health is really outside the exam room. You know, we call them yeah. social determinants of health, but it's really, there's, it's, it's the places you live, where you learn, where you work, where you play, where you either get these little advantages to make you healthier or disadvantages to make you healthier. And one of the things about public health is we try to make sure everybody gets those advantages, uh, right. which is something that we can build on, which I think is important. Agree. Absolutely. Right. It doesn't matter how great the clinic is. If you can't get there because you have no transportation, then, you know, how are you going to actually reap the benefits of all those services? Right. Yeah. And, it, you know, you really have a good point, too. If you don't live in a neighborhood that's safe, it, it doesn't matter if you got to the doctor's office that day. And if your work environment isn't safe or if you're not learning what you need to learn in school, you can't achieve in life. There's just a lot here. This has been a great conversation, Dr. Park. Dr. Chen and I have really enjoyed talking to you. So Dr. Park is the author of a book called Strange Bedfellows, Adventures in Science, History, and Surprising Secrets of STDs, available from Barnes & Noble, Google Play, Kindle, iBooks, ebooks.com, Kobo, and anywhere you purchase books. So if you're interested in a fun read, I recommend Strange Bedfellows. Dr. Park, it's been great chatting with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Dr. McDonald and Dr. Chan. It's been great. So, Dr. Chan, what's the final word for today? <laughs> yes, thank you again, Dr. Park. It's been a pleasure. So, in closing, I want to leave everyone with a moment of Zen to consider throughout the rest of your day. And here it is, a quote from the Buddha. Happiness will never come to those who fail to appreciate what they already have. So, make sure to tell someone you love them today. Check in with their provider about whether you should be tested for STIs and appreciate all that you have in life. So, thank you all and be safe. I want to thank Jose Garcia, our executive producer, Carol Stone, our technical director. I'm Dr. Jim McDonald. Have a good and keep up the great.